Welcome to episode number 24 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And on this week's episode, we welcome in a friend of mine, uh, notorious sports better. I don't know why that's the ad- adjective that I chose, but that's the one that I went with. Uh, you can find him now with Bets TV. He's also the co-creator of the Punks comic, and we'll talk some NFTs at the end of this as well. We welcome in sports cheetah, Preston Johnson. Uh, and Preston, I actually never asked you how you actually got that name, Sports Cheetah. I don't know why, but it's eluded me for probably the 10 years that I've interacted with you on Twitter. Uh, sure. I can give a short story. Nothing special. Back when I was still in college, went with some friends to Vegas every year for March Madness. And there was just uh, one of the days, a run of like five or six straight. That I remember a George Mason game being the last one. They were a pretty big underdog, big upset. And my friends were betting like five or 10 bucks a game. I'm like, no joke. I don't think it was more than 10 bucks a game. And, but they were just loving that they were up 50 bucks. And one of them just boarded out like, ah, oh, the sports cheetah. And it just like, I was like, okay. And that was it. And then like <laughs> a year later, I started posting on Twitter and I actually wrote for a blog. And they asked, like, hey, what's your Twitter handle? And I didn't want to use my personal one. So I created this one. I was like, well, I got to think of a name. And that was just what came to mind because of the year before, like my friend had blurted that out and called me the sports cheetah. So I rolled with it and I never would have guessed it got to where it's been now, but um, no real significance other than that was a nickname I got winning five college games one Saturday. It's just so random. Like of all the, uh, the names, it's just like, cheetah is what he came up with on the spot and it's i don't think he was like on drugs or anything it's just what he blurted out and it is what it is and the name followed him to espn and beyond um preston i will say you you kind of front front ran us a bit here as uh i noticed today an all new bet the process rufus peabody jeff ma and exclusive guest preston johnson as i read that i'm like oh for christ's sakes we're about to have preston on our podcast (laughs) Good news is they only have seven followers and listeners. So you're in good shape there. Uh, And all we did is talk about college football week one a little bit. And, you know, Rufus and Jeff going after each other over golf and Calcutta and whatever else they kind of like to bicker about. So we're, we're in for, I would, if I was, and I, I totally find saying this, if I were to recommend one of the two podcasts this week to the audience, it would be yours. I've seen the rundown. Some of the questions, it's a little more engaging. So I'm going to have, I'm going to have our social media guy clip that and then post it. <laughs> That's Just put it. Definitely, definitely not getting the Jeff Ma Christmas card this year that he's been taken off the list. Uh, no, it's funny. It's, uh, it's funny that we actually don't talk as often anymore, Preston, because I think we're the two rotating guests on, on bet the process. And we just kind of like, we each do our own week and then that's it. And uh, I think this is the first time I've interacted with you in a long time. It's funny that we've never overlapped before because I know there's been some weeks where I think they've they've messaged both of us. At least Rufus has told me that. I don't know if it's true or not. But anyways, good to talk to you. Um, wanted to, this is a sports betting podcast. We will get into some NFT stuff at the end because there is a lot of overlap as well. And I know that there's some people that are interested. Um, but I've listened to you on a number of things before. Uh, I, I think it generally would just be interesting if you can give some people some betting background, how you got into betting before. I don't think that there's a common story out there. At least I haven't heard one. So just for people that don't know you, I guess the brief background on how you got involved in this space and basically how you got to where you are now. Sure. So initially it was uh, just high school, 2003, Chris Moneymaker, Poker Boom. And that's like where gambling came in at all to begin with. 
And so, you know, I started junior, senior year. And once I turned 18, I was a senior. I would start visiting all of the Indian casinos. You only had to be 18. I'd play there the first tournament I ever played. I got third and I just started playing online. I went to college, but it, that's, that's where I really stemmed from. And then when Black Friday hit, I was finishing school. I also was serious with at the time, my, my girlfriend, now my wife. And like, I didn't want to just like flee the country like a lot of poker pros were doing. And so uh, I had, I remember the number, it was around 50,000, like as far as like my bankroll for poker that wasn't locked up in full tilt, which took like years to finally get back eventually. Um, and I was like, well, what do I do with this? And I always loved sports. I ultimately ended up studying sports for my, my master's degree and uh, sports psychology, I should verify or, or clarify. But uh, I took that and I was like, I got to just start betting and, and figure this out. And at least some sort of like bankroll management, those types of processes that stem from poker were useful. And so I think while regularly people probably couldn't just, you know, like get pretty good at betting in a year or two, uh, that helped put me in a position, I think, to where I was never like chasing losses. I was never going bust and then having to worry about making money in real life, trying to, you know, bet again and figure it out. It just was, it was pretty stable from the get-go. And so then I would say after about two years, I felt like um, there were some edges that I was able to to figure out. I was able to to, to model um, football and basketball primarily to a level that was was beatable and then kind of just went from there. It's funny how many people have gotten into this space because of Chris Moneymaker. I think you're like the third person on this podcast who's referenced that as being like a turning point. Uh, I can I can say specifically for myself, uh, I played one year of full-time poker, dropped out of university to play full-time poker, and it was purely because of the Chris Moneymaker boom as well. Um, so I, I do think that there's so many betters in this space that probably started in poker at that time and then eventually gravitated towards betting because of just that ESPN showing the World Series of Poker and Chris Moneymaker literally winning like 40 coin flips in a row. Some absurd number. I don't think it was exactly 40, but um, it's crazy how so many people have that exact same story. I actually didn't know that you played professionally or at least were playing online and trying to do the thing for a year. Dropped out of university. Did not know that either. Did you ever go back or is that was that it? Uh, so, so I, it, 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 I was the life story from Rob Pizzola here, but uh, essentially, we used to have a grade thir- 13 in Ontario, which was called your OAC year. And I, th- the year that the Ontario government removed that uh, was the year that I was supposed to go to grade 13. So essentially, there was this double cohort of people going to university at the same time. It's harder for people to get in. That wasn't an issue for me. The problem was I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so from grade 12, I had to quickly make a decision of what I want to do. I don't know. I, I said, I took economics my first year of university. Cause I'm like, ah, this will probably have some sort of use case down the road for me. I absolutely hated it was playing poker in all my spare time. I'm like, I'm dropping out. I'm moving in with my girlfriend. I'm telling my parents I'm taking some other random job. I don't want them to know that I'm playing poker at all, which I did. I, I lied to them for a year. I played poker. I was loving it for like a couple months, then became absolutely miserable. I really tried to treat it like a full-time job, a nine to five. I wake up, shower, get at my computer. About three months later, I was playing maybe half an hour a day, an hour a day. It just became too robotic for me. Um, even though I was always been like that, you've mentioned it. I know I'm interjecting, but even more recently, you said like, I need something else to do to like, just, you know, feel like I'm a contributing in some way that's different and unique. And yeah, no, that's good. You realize that pretty early then. I did go back to school. 
still didn't get a degree because I, I went back to school for stats and computer science, did a few years and then said, I have all the knowledge I need, was interning at the score at the time. They hired me and then it just kind of went went down this path. But uh, yeah, sorry, I, I, I don't want to steal, steal the spotlight. I appreciate you asking me the questions. I do like my voice being heard, as I've mentioned on this podcast before. So Pre- Preston, obviously you go from poker, you developed a bankroll. Um, I think it, it, we're of similar age. I, I, for me, from a personal perspective, it was very difficult for me to realize that I had an edge. I kind of actually learned about it, I guess, in a backhanded way because I was posting my numbers to Twitter every day. And then somebody just basically reached out to me saying, buddy, you got to stop posting your numbers. Somebody's betting these numbers. Um, so I'm just curious, at what point did you actually realize that you had an edge on sports betting and, and decide that you were going to take this to like another level? I think it was about two years of betting, which maybe doesn't seem like a long time, but like that combined with poker, like I felt pretty confident. One thing I was able to understand pretty early too was just the market dynamics. And, you know, after betting for two years or like a full season, my volume was always pretty high in both hoops and football too. Uh, you know, you can compare what you're betting versus where the market is closing and get a pretty good idea if you're ahead more often than not. At the time, you know, I was like super, I, I put some of that 50,000, it was like 40 something, a portion of it away to pay for school. As I did grad school and I wanted to just not have to go into any debt for that. And I used about 30 of it to bet sports. And I remember I was betting like super conservatively, like 1%. So I was betting like 300 a game initially. And so anyways, but I was firing like 20, 25 games a weekend for football. Um, but at that point after doing so, you know, a couple hundred plays for two years straight, I got a good idea of, you know, if the market's going this way and point of bringing up the 300 a game thing, I was betting early in the week. I had no reason to wait myself. And then when I started posting stuff on Twitter, it was similar. I was, I was posting them early, but you know, then you see the market moving um, throughout the week and you just kind of have a sense that, okay, this is, this is worthwhile. And, and I think so after about two years, that's where I was at. I want to touch on the high volume side of things um, because um, I'll, I'll throw it out there, but my current betting partner in this space used to work with you in, in some capacity down the road. And I remember like four or five years ago, he was just saying to me, the amount of plays that this guy has is absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like that before. And that's kind of been my experience with you in some group chats as well, seeing the amount of volume you play on a, on a college basketball Saturday and you talk about 25 plays on a, on a college football Saturday, but I've actually seen much more than that as well. He likes to sweat the games. Well, it's possible, Second but <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you found that to be detrimental uh, in any way, because obviously tying up credit being one thing, the amount of time it must take to be able to go through an entire card and entire Saturday. Um, I, I, I like, how did you gravitate towards that type of volume? Because typically I think sports betters, especially the inexperienced ones that are getting into the space will tend to like try to limit themselves a little bit. They'll hear a lot of things about, Oh, don't play too much volume. Like how did it, how did it get to that point? There's probably, it's a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. There's probably a middle ground and balance that's correct. As far as the newcomer, that's like, oh, I should only bet like three or four bets a, a week or something, right? Just because, like, I probably didn't appreciate or respect the market as much early. That's my initial thought. Uh, and if I had, or if I had regressed my numbers back then to the market, then, you know, maybe 20% of my volumes out the window. And if I had taken, you know, historical on that 20% and seen how I did, maybe it wouldn't have performed as well. So I could have improved my ROI, lowered volume. Uh, I also just really, it's easy to say now, and and, and it's easy to uh, 
like pat people and each other on the back. But like I was grinding and it came from poker and you're playing online all the time. But like I was following college football every single day. I would watch games all Saturday. I would get Saturday nights like a headache every day just from staring at screens. Uh, it might be similar for you on Sundays more frequently. I've took Sunday to spend more time with my family. I go to church still. So NFL hasn't been as, as ridiculous for me, but Saturdays, like I usually just have like a crazy headache and I, and it's because I'm really following everything. I am betting live in second halves. And so that's where a lot of the, you know, ultimately the, the 20 to 30 play volume can come in, but I would definitely say that I probably overshot it by 20% maybe. Um, but then that still means there's probably like 15 good edges on a weekend maybe maybe 15 to 18 and people that think they can only bet three to five it's just look if if you have good shit and it says there's an edge generally you should bet the edge and and just trust that you have something that's going to pay off and if it doesn't then you can make adjustments accordingly um but for a lot of the time it was i think that's sorry i was going to say i think that's a good rule of thumb to say to people we, we just talked about this on the previous podcast like there's no you know never do this in sports betting you know never play every game on the board I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you mentioned it already, closing line value is so important. If each game is going to move one to two points, then technically you could have bet, you know, you could have bet at least one of those sides of every single game. Uh, and for a college basketball, you know, or a college football Saturday, you have at a minimum, there's going to be 30 games that move probably more than two points plus totals and things like that. So um, understand where you're coming from now, not saying that for everyone that's going to work, you know, if, if listening is someone who's trying to win at betting, you know, tons of volume may not be the thing, but it, it's definitely something that it can be profitable. And there's a lot of, a lot more groups that are doing that as well nowadays. Uh, I'll add one more thing real quick, Rob, before, before you get to the next uh, subject, so to speak. So I think, and I'm going to do it this year as well, but I've done it in the past. And one of like the most hidden gems, I think on my Twitter feed over the years, every Friday night before college football Saturday, I would, pick a side in every single game just for the sake of like, Hey, this is, if I had to make a play here, this is what I would post. And like, they always perform really well where every season people are like, shit, why aren't you betting this blindly? Like maybe outside of one season where I was just slightly over 500 or something. And it made me for one, like kind of question it to some extent, but mm -hmm. it also, I think just cause it's all public there. I probably did it for like four or five seasons straight. Um, it's pretty good and useful, valuable information for other people that are out there trying to make their decisions before Saturday morning stuff starts moving a little more heavily. But it also is a pretty, it was more evidence kind of for me to just see and kind of track how I'm doing relative to like, if I had to make a play on every side, how I'm doing versus closes in that regard and how they're just performing from a win loss, you know, profitability standpoint. And if you're doing well doing something like that, then like what you're doing is probably going to work. Um, no matter what your volume is to some extent, right? So um, anyways, it's, it's something that people can, can mess with. And if you're following along, I post them every Friday night. But uh, it, it's been something that I think people were able to learn from some and actually capitalize more on than I even had myself. So you got to kind of set a limit eventually, right? Like 25 plays on a Saturday is enough with totals too. But uh, it's fun to at least track and see how you do on that type of stage. True story. I do the exact same thing as you, but I don't uh, publish it publicly to see if I can actually beat you in a season which I did a couple years ago. And, uh, I, so one of the seasons that you've posted on Fridays, I've done the exact same thing and I ended up beating you. But for the most part, you get the better of me. I never uh, knew that you did that. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, you never mentioned it before. Nice. No, I, I haven't. I keep a lot of things to myself, but it, I, I think exercises like that are cool. Uh, and, and they kind of start to make you think in ways that you traditionally wouldn't think. Like it's the same thing. I do a Sunday morning periscope and the advice I give to people on Sunday mornings is like, 
don't bet on Sunday mornings. This is a very efficient market. Place your bets earlier in the week type of thing. And then I have three winning years in a row where I'm returning like 5% ROI. And I'm like, hmm, like maybe maybe I have something that's better than market here. But there's real there's really no way to validate that or not. Um, and you kind of just got to go with your gut. But I, I love exercises that like that just that just make you think in a different capacity. Yeah, definitely. I used to do that for UFC about five years ago. I'd pick every single I'd pick every single fight at open when I could when I could find the odds. And uh, the first year I did, it, I'm like, yeah, I'm like a huge UFC fan. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna easily pick winners here. I picked every single fight. Would have been down like probably 80 units in the year or something. Just like I test. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm like I'm like oh this guy's this and like I used to like look him up on stupid sites like sure dog and stuff and look at their amateur again this is like years ago it's like five years ago um and uh it was funny and then i actually learned that was one at the time when i was kind of learning like nah this is not how you bet sports like you can't do it like this like the public stuff that you could just find like looking through an espn box score that's not going to help you win um there's 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 other things and you know i i do still bet ufc and uh done a lot better uh, than that. And, you know, do consider myself a winning better in MMA at this point, but it's, uh, it's funny. So, uh, that's cool. You guys were at least able to do it. And funny part was I was getting absolutely I, demolished by closing line too. Like, I'd be like, yeah, this guy's good at minus 10. I'd check back like for the fight. He's like plus one eighty. <laughs> <laughs> that bad. No, I, I'm, I'm overplaying it, but yeah, certain, certain fights. I remember I would just get absolutely dusted and be laughing hard. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in in people that just post information publicly because, um, frankly, like there's not really a whole lot of upside in you doing that. It's mostly downside. Uh, like on a Friday, the day before Saturday college football, you're most likely coin flipping. I, I don't want to say that you necessarily are. Like again, you could have something that's better than market at that point, but there's not a ton of upside. Which brings me to your your MLB betting competition with Matt Zylbert, um, which. I I don't know. So I, I faced a similar one with Ben the Better where he was challenging me and I'm like, no, you got to beat my tortoise before you're going to... Like, I was just trying to get him off my trail no matter what because I'm like, what is the upside for me to possibly go head-to-head in a competition against someone who everyone expects me to beat? And I want to know what made you agree to do that with the king of over-unders. So I, to be completely honest, I'm a little more naive to a lot a lot of more so the last like year because of like nft crypto stuff but i mean even prior to that i like really didn't know who he was and like everyone had already been talking about this kid for a while but he was just like talking smack i think my nfl record like six weeks into my being tracked on espn was like i don't know seven and nine and he was like oh this guy hits 40 something percent i'm the king i'm over under and so i was like just whenever in, in his things baseball too apparently so he's like, next baseball season, like, let's do it. Let's go head to head. Because, and I've, whenever people have challenged me online, um, I was, and you know this, I, I've never been shy to like, I don't, I've always wanted to like stick up for what I believe in, right? And like my, and that my stuff's good, or at least good enough to be profitable. And I've always challenged people back, and almost always they say no. Well, Zilbert wanted to, and then like our friend Kevin wanted to for the WNBA one. And there's maybe one other time I did a contest after someone was talking smack. Uh, but regardless, the silver one, like all this hype, baseball comes around. And I, so the reason I did it to answer your main question is like, he was talking shit. I said, <laughs> all right, let's go head to head. And he's like, okay. And I was like, oh, all right, he's actually doing it. And then when it all was said and done, I think it was for a thousand dollars was the total amount. And it was like, pick a game every day. 
I guess that's his thing. I guess he does like one write up a day on his favorite yeah. play or whatever. And so we tracked him on Betstamp last year. Yeah, that's what he does. Separately, or does he like enter them in himself? Um, he was part of the media pick section, which was, uh, I mean, yeah, we, he he wanted to dismiss story. last season, I, I believe, because Wait, of it was the, a weird COVID. It was a weird COVID year, so his bets didn't count last year. Wait, right? actually, was- I owe Zybert an apology on the podcast. Actually, remember, I was supposed to give him an apology, and we recorded an episode. We didn't air that one. Uh, Matt Zybert, uh, I apologize. I called you out for not betting your own picks, and then you you did post a screenshot that you did bet the pick and I appreciate that. And for that, I'm sorry. And let's continue the combo. He he would show me sometimes because we were locking in either Penny or Chris Lyons at a certain time each day. And there was a few times, I don't know, because he posts so early in the morning and there's like, people are always questioning his, the line move. The, that's why we tracked him on bets, Dan. And that's what you're trying. He does actually, I think more often than not, bet it himself. It's just so early. And then by the time the article goes live or is published, which I told him, I was like, you can't publish it. That's like super stale three or four hours later. Either way, he usually actually has the ticket himself. He showed me a few times. So I'm not trying to stick up for the guy, but I did see that he would, something would move a half run and he'd have the original line um, or he Googled it and found one or something or Photoshopped. I didn't really spend a ton of time, but regardless, it was like a 60 day contest, right? Cause it was such a short season. And he lost by like 40 units almost. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Picking <laughs> one bet a day. The biggest destruction you would ever see in like a two-month competition where Preston was on this massive heater and <laughs> Zyber couldn't pick a winner, which is like, it, you couldn't have a more lopsided loss. I was like 23 games ahead with like three weeks left and I stopped tracking because it was just, it was like basically over. And I even say, because it's kind of a pain every day having to like, make sure everything's locked in using Penny and Chris lines. Like I was like, I'll let you buy out for like seven fifty. I think I gave him like a 25% discount. And he's like, no, I got to see this to the end. So we kept doing it, but, the, but it, it got worse. I just kept thinking like, okay, there's going to be some regression and it ended up getting to like 37 or I think was the difference. And a lot of it, I, I did well on that, but he had like a one in 17 start two and 19 start or something just horrendously awful a lot of bad variants like obviously he's better than a a 10 percent better but um he definitely doesn't count last season in his records that's a fact i just find it hilarious that you offered him 25 percent of his money back at what we're basically he has like a 0.1 percent chance to win and he did not accept that in the most minus ev play um of his entire life point actually (laughs) 250 dollars yeah All right, Preston, this is not this is not bet the process, but Rob did want to call you out for at one point selling picks. And I and I don't want to be the guy to do it, so I'll let Rob call you out. Well, when I first came across Preston's account, I actually thought he was a, a pretty sharp guy. I think we communicated a lot. And then I actually don't even remember who it was that messaged me on the side and they're like, Why why do you chat with this guy? Like he's he sells picks. And at that time, um, or maybe it was a year or two later, you were selling picks on what was widely regarded as a not well, like a scummy site. Uh, it was a scummy, a scummy site. I'm not going to name what it was, whatever people want to look into it, they can. Uh, but I, I want to know, like you were winning at the time. What, what led you to selling plays? And I mean, you, you faced a lot of heat for several years from the Twitter community as always happens with, people who sell plays and I did the same when I was with prediction machine. Um, but do you feel like it hurt your reputation at any, mo- at all? And, and do you have any regrets from that time? 
it certainly doesn't help your reputation. I think if you're selling, uh, you'd have to, I'm trying to think of someone who had his reputation go up like, Oh, I hear you sell picks. Awesome. And yeah, that definitely uh, would be rare if, if at all. So hurt my reputation. Yes. I'll, I'll be honest. And I think I was a little, man, I was coming from poker. I was also a student and I think I was just a little naive to the whole, like, like what the tout thing was. And I was, I think 24 at the time. And the guys reached out to me from the tout site and were like, Hey, you're posting a bunch of stuff. That's great. I also wrote a college football guide. I think the one year prior was like the first time I did this, like not quite as crazy as Phil Steele, but similar. I love, I love that guide. I love that guide, by the way. Yeah, I remember you, you actually got copy. it a few times yep. or yeah. I, and I, I used it. So to me, that was a great resource. So they were like, Hey, we can sell this. We'll get you way more eyes. You'll post plays. And I was like finishing school. I was like, all right, I could. And I think I had started my, my master's degree or, or excuse me, my PhD and I had finished my master's degree and I had planned on doing like three or four more years of school. Just like in the psychology field, you kind of have to just to get anything uh, sort of, you know, worthwhile as far as income in that field. So uh, regardless, they reached out to me and I was like, okay, well, I could make like potentially like six figures, like doing sports betting. Like, all right, this sounds right. So I signed a contract with them. And then that really kind of threw me into the fire of like, just how it all works. And after the three-year contract was up, I, I left. So uh, it was pretty straightforward. And I learned a lot along the way. Uh, and definitely, I don't think my reputation was up, but I will say, and, and shout out to you because one, it might've taken another year or two before you put me in touch with one of the guys that you partner with Tibet. But that first year that you did, uh, and I was only, I think 25% of the action, but you know, me and him betting like one to 3000 a game made like 140 K that year. So I had a piece. I remember I sent you like a bottle of something like, I don't even know. I don't drink, but it was, yes. it was something. Da- Dalmore, Dalmore reserve. I, I remember it clearly. That was my first experience with it. And I actually still drink it. Oh, nice. There you go. Yeah. So it works out. So everyone's winning. But the main point is that I thought it was intriguing. And I, th- I feel like it's really, uh, it, it correlates to kind of like the era we're in right now with all this NFT crypto stuff that everyone just calls a scam or is money laundering or whatever they want to say. But you were open-minded to at least like follow my stuff for a while, track it probably to some extent before you talk to your partner about it, then actually willing to give me an account or two to use to bet. And so just having that willingness to be open-minded about it, that, hey, there could be someone that was selling picks at the time or previously that actually you know has an edge. And similar, I guess, to you with Prediction Machine, right? Like, so you, I guess you probably could relate to some extent. And so now, like with all this NFT stuff, it's like, yeah, like most people are just quick to shut something off that doesn't make sense. And just the value of being able to keep an open mind and like internalize the information you're getting and at least try to make an educated decision is super valuable, no matter what walk of life, any business that you're in. So um, that's something that I guess I appreciate coming from your side years ago that I don't know if I would have ever been able to make as much from betting and partnerships with some other people if it wasn't for that. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Preston. Um, You know, for anyone listening, like sometimes you do need to make a little bit of a a risk or a chance and be open-minded. We'll talk about that. I think later in the podcast. So from there, I know you then uh, journeyed over to ESPN uh, onto you know a really big time show. We had uh, Doug Kazarian on the podcast earlier this year, uh, so we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to get your. Um, I mean, listen, you're no longer at ESPN. I know you're doing your own show now, so I guess the question is, how was ESPN? And you were running one of the you know prominent betting shows, you know, giving out either picks or things like that. 
I tuned in for a bunch of episodes and what I saw that you did better than anybody else was turn sharp betting into a way where it was simplified. So talking about things like line movement in a way where people may be able to understand it versus maybe the, the way Rob and I talk about it on this podcast where it's going to fly over the head of 99% of people. So I wanted to get your opinion on how ESPN was and what you tried to accomplish there. Well, I appreciate that that comment. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things is trying to take what we're doing and make it digestible for the average viewer or listener. Um, actually, to be, to be completely honest, a few weeks into my my start there at ESPN, I was there in Bristol shooting something, and Matthew Berry was also around at like a lunch or something. Anyway, he came up to me. Like, I didn't ever talk to Matthew Berry in my life. He's really genuinely just such a nice guy. I talked to him plenty since, but he came up to me and he said, Hey, I've been watching. You do a really good job. Don't worry about like the, it's your first couple of weeks on TV thing. He's like, what you're doing, bringing stuff and making it digestible. Like you alluded to for a lot of the audience that this is just all brand new. He's like, that's going to be what, what really kind of like hits home and will eventually kind of like, you know, separate you from the pack. And he said, you know, when I was doing fantasy, it was the same thing. Like it was really hard to like look at, and now like fantasy stats and metrics are like, pretty basic for a lot of us but 20 years ago when he was starting making that stuff you know obtainable and make sense and simplified for a lot of the audience was what he was was doing and and was kind of first to do and so anyways that it's a great compliment i appreciate it uh and something that i don't know if you want to go into like talent scouting johnny or something but matthew barry agreed with you so <laughs> you have a you have another career there if you need it uh, but I'll, I'll say this because i know part part of the, i know we have a little rundown here uh, I did have little to no media experience. So the TV part was, was pretty uh, stressful. Like I was pretty anxious at the first few shows we did. Um, before that, I did a few radio spots with like Visa in there in Vegas. And I had done a podcast with Matt Lindemann for fun for a, a yep. season of college football, uh, but nothing like too serious. So um, I also appreciate them again, open mind kind of the theme, I guess they called me the day before the talent team from ESPN was flying into Vegas to interview 12 people, some Twitter egg reached out to me and said, Hey, are you Preston? Send me a DM or something. I'm with ESPN. We're launching a new show. And I thought it was like fake. Uh, really? I think it was a Twitter egg and I'm pretty sure she deleted it right after so that it wasn't even public once I reached out, but it, it was real. And she's like, Hey, we're flying in tomorrow. Can we fit you into an interview? I said, sure. Like, yeah, I'll be there. And so I've, I was kind of like the, the, the way she put it, she's like, we keep hearing about this cheetah guy and I feel like we're going to be there. We just might as well just interview you, but it's weird. Like you go by cheetah. Like, I don't know why we would want you, but everyone says we should talk to you. And so I interviewed with them. And then like a week later, they, they reached out and uh, they said, Hey, we, we loved you. Would you come out to Bristol and meet some of the other executives? And as soon as this, you know, Disney green lights, the show, we're going to go for it. But, uh, they preferred that I was an actual better versus all the other 12 people were former media members that had done radio and maybe had some TV experience, but no real betting experience. And then they liked that I was younger too. I think a good portion of the ones they interviewed were 40 to 50 years old. So um, that's kind of how that all wrapped in together. But uh, yeah, I just got lucky with the Twitter egg one day reading the mentions. So how did you fuse it though? Because so great, great story, but how did you fuse being an actual better with um, being I guess we'll call it a media member because that's what you were, you know, being on an ESPN show that gets national coverage, you're a media guy, but also you're still betting at the time, right? So how was, how did you fuse that together? 
Well, it's it's tough. It's it's a great question because so daily wager was I believe like three to four Pacific time, which at four all the NBA games and MLB games like first pitch is coming, and we would do our best bet section five minutes before first pitch or NBA tip off. Like it's really hard to beat the market five minutes before first pitch, especially uh, a best bet section, right? So it, it, this is just how it was. Then people can say all oh, excuses. That's fine. Like I probably batted around five hundred on the best bets maybe slightly above 500, but it wasn't profitable. But some of the stuff we would do earlier in the week, looking ahead to the weekend was better or futures opportunities that presented themselves. But this is like a typical day-to-day on the show. Night before, I send an email to the producers and say, hey, this is everything that looks good. Like, this is what I would bet or, or have bet to this point. We'll find out. We'll see what it's like in the morning. Then half of that would be like unbettable by the time we woke up on the Pacific coast. So they talked to me like, okay, well, what do you think about these games? They were very, very good about never forcing like what you hear a lot about, like, oh, this is the big game, like Clemson, Georgia week one. Like they would never force that you had to make a bet in those games. They understood and appreciated and respected where I came from there, where if I wanted to talk about New Mexico State, I could. But regardless, like in the NBA, especially like if I'm betting stuff the night before, looking at it the night before, you're like totals are going to move three to four points in the NBA. And then maybe there's one or two that even move from the morning before showtime starts. So then I'm left with like my bottom like 20% in my profile. Right. So like, and those ones aren't going to be winning nearly as often as, as the others. So it definitely made it tough to try to take as a real better and applying it to like a TV show. Like how do I do this and make it profitable for everyone? It was, it was tough. Yeah. I think, listen, it, you sum summing that up is the exact like perfect definition of why it's so hard to fuse media and giving out actionable content that people can be profitable. So you hear it like Preston has, like, let's say he's got 10 edges. By the time the show is a couple minutes before the game, he's only playing, he's only giving out the picks that have market resistance, which in theory, those which are going to be- probably drawing dead, yeah. Yeah, either those are the ones that you didn't have an edge on and maybe your total portfolio was plus EV, but those weren't. Or at the worst, those are your lowest edges in the market. So when people need to give out picks on these shows, like, you know, the picks necessarily aren't, aren't valuable. They're not really valuable. What's valuable, as Preston mentioned, is- you know, maybe some analysis on futures, early week stuff, how he's thinking about the games, where he's where he's getting it. Um, but people who are just watching for the picks, I mean, also on ESPN, I brought this up before. There's, there's uh, Yanni the Greek giving out the picks in the UFC broadcast, right, right in between the things. And like, listen, he has to give out picks, but at the end of the day, like, no one's winning tailing those because it's a couple minutes of the fight, and it's just the reality is you're not going to have edges a couple of minutes before you're going to be 50, 50 coin flipping. So it's cool that you were able to manage that. I remember one graphic that came up uh, probably about a year ago was something where you tried to explain on ESPN on daily wager, how the difference, you know, if you say a game moved by two points or a game moved by four points, sometimes the game that moved by two points actually moved more because it crossed, you know, two and a half and three and a half versus the game that went from minus two to plus two and moved four points. And it was something I think maybe it was a low key shot at like a Darren Ravel or something after he tweeted his biggest line move, something like that. But I remember a graphic on ESPN. I saw it on Twitter and I saw that I'm like, wow, like I hope people can understand this because this is exactly what the guys on mainstream media need to talk about. Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. I remember the exact segment you're talking about. And, and I remember reposting it. There's like maybe three times, like my two years there and COVID took out a chunk of that with no sports, but where I reposted a video and said like, 
rewatched this, like listen a few times because I was like really proud of how I articulated it live, which doesn't usually happen well. And that was one of them actually. And I said, and I told the producer like 99% of the people watching probably like maybe it flew over their head. When my mom started watching, she's like, this is a different language. Like, good job, honey. Like she doesn't know. But when that's why I would repost. I was like, this is like actually worthwhile. This is stuff that you can learn from. And you know, some of those processes are worthwhile, but uh, that was, I remember that was probably three occasions. That was one of them where I was like, good. Yeah. That was a good segment. I'm glad we did that. Do you think it got through to people? It did for sure. A couple out there, I'm sure some, to some extent, but and, and I'll say this, this, the producers learned a lot and are very open-minded as well in like digesting it and then translating it and like making the segment work a lot of the times. And they're open to talking through some of those things. But there was also a few times where they told me after, like, we got to like dumb it down a little more. And I just like, wasn't thinking about it enough before. And it's just like, kind of like went more to how I would naturally talk about the Portland Trailblazers when Yusuf Nurkic got hurt and how he affects um, my projections or something. And like, I just remember some time after a Portland thing I did and they're like, all right, that was like, that was just way too much. So we we found a nice middle ground, but they were certainly open to having some good discussions like that, that were more broad. Do you think that, th- that the emphasis on giving out picks is eventually going to change? Like, obviously when you start with daily wager, this is when regulation is happening in the U S you have a, a whole new market of betters that have never bet before. Uh, a lot of these concepts that you're talking about are just going to fly right over their head, like you said, and it's probably one of those things where, okay, I'm going to tune in because I want to see some picks and then I'm going to bet those picks. Do you think we're going to get to a point at some point in the near future or even distant future where the the content landscape kind of flips on its head and it becomes more so about strategy than it does about, okay, here's your bet? Or do you just think that this is the inevitable way that that most of the content will always be? I think it can be both. I think it could definitely just be the inevitable way that it'll be. Honestly, that's probably the favorite that that's just how it's going to be. And it's already super saturated. And one of the reasons I ended up choosing to leave after my, my two years was up and, and starting the bets TV thing and doing my own show in a local studio. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to do something that was just different than what everyone else was doing, but I also wanted to, I didn't want it to always be about just, you have to pick winners, even though there's a lot of people out there that they just only care about the picks, the majority of them, that's all they want. And then they just bet them. They just want some sort of action for the day or for the weekend, whatever. Give me the picks. That's it. It's, and if that's all some people care about, which is why I think that structure or whatever is, is going to be what it is for a long time. But there's also a portion out there that are trying to learn, understand some of the higher level concepts and are trying to get better as betters. And so I wanted to like engage with that audience more frequently if I could. And so one thing I do on my, my last word cheetah show is actually take phone calls, kind of like old school radio meets sports betting, which no one had really been doing at all yet. And I wasn't really sure why, but which I could actually tell you why uh, down the road. Cause I think Rob actually. So, so let, let's get, let's get to that now. So you left the SPN, you started your own thing. Tell us about bets TV. Sure. So Last Retreat is the first show that we do. And it's literally, I I talk about some stuff that I'm betting myself, but we also just take calls from people. And I thought there would be some sort of, I think you can have fun with it, right? The win doesn't have to be picking winners and losers. It can be, we have callers calling and saying like, Hey, I respect your opinion. This is what I'm thinking of betting. What do you think? Or I like this because, and then I can share my thoughts and be informative after the fact and kind of engage with them that way. There's been a few times where I think it's been interesting to see people that call in and don't realize once they're talking it through how elementary their thought process are. There was, here's one example. He doesn't care either. He doubt he's listening to this, but his name's Carlos. 
and we, we get we needle him every once in a while for this. He's a pretty regular caller. The MLB All Star Game. It was the day. It was like super slow. All we had that day to bet was MLB All Star Game. Maybe there was still some NHL, but I don't do NHL personally. Not many people, you know, the general audience care about hockey. Sorry, Rob. So he calls and he says, "All right, MLB All Star Game at eleven. He says, "I'm taking the over. The balls were flying out of the park last night." And the night before was the home run derby. They're at Coors Field. And I literally stopped and I said, Carlos, of course they were flying out of the park last night. It was the home run derby, man. Like, And it's Coors Field. You don't think anyone knows this. And sure enough, it went way under the total. But like, there was little like learning opportunities and experiences there for some of the callers. And then also wanted to do something kind of fun in the sense like we're giving away money. Like when people call in, we track their bets. At the end of the month, we give away cash. I'm doing like a who wants to be a millionaire betting extraordinaire uh, sort of spinoff where people call in and we have seven day ladders of where they could potentially win seven picks in a row for seven days and win $25,000. Uh, I'm putting up half of that personally and then half of it's coming from Bets TV. Uh, and so we're just trying to like have some fun with it where people can win some money. They can also talk through games with me and then I share my opinions and kind of just make it a little more laid back, but still informative and fun. Why the name Last Word Cheetah? Uh, I was called that when I used to argue a lot more on Twitter, like years ago. Chee Chiwi, oh, my if first. Inter- Chiwi. I remember Chiwi and my first interactions with you, Preston. I was like, man, this guy will not give up on an argument. Like he's just gonna go to the very end. And uh, I rem- I clearly remember this like ten years ago, but I clearly remember that about you. people when I when I said I was like twenty four. Like when I was younger, and I. I, I I'm, I've learned things since I wouldn't have argued nearly as much with people. Luckily I've been able to like keep relationships with most, most of like the OG gambling Twitter guys. I'm friends with everyone, but she would say, you know, hashtag LWC last word cheetah. And so like four years ago, I did a podcast with Matt and we called it last word cheetah. And it was only for like 12 episodes, maybe for a college football season. So then I was like, it just was too obvious not to do last word cheetah for, for this show. I'm, uh, I'm amazed at the overlap between our lives and, uh, we're friends, but we really haven't talked about our past a whole lot. But I, I when I left uh, university, dropped out to join the score, I was a regular caller into uh, a show that they had called Game On on Hardcore Sports Radio, which was Sirius Satellite Radio. And this was just two hosts, two co-hosts, Gabriel Morenci, Cam Stewart, taking calls for an hour leading up to the games of what people bet on and kind of working through that thought process with them. And I eventually got to be the host of that show it's probably my favorite experience in life in at least in a working capacity throughout my life because you get to talk through so many to so many different people and hear so many different um, I guess styles of handicapping and how they break down games and so on and so forth eventually covers bought the airtime and it turned into basically a uh, an infor- infomercial for their totes, which was unfortunate um, that I had to host that on top of it. But I was I'll, I was always wondering what like obviously this is a very small niche thing and was because the score was not a, a huge company at that time. But s- since that time, which was like 2012, basically till now, I had not seen something like that in the betting space. That just opened it up to a more interactive audience. So I do applaud you guys for doing that. And I mean, um, just from a personal perspective, I, th- I think you share a lot of the same things. But to me, it's just, it's the most enjoyable content that I've ever done in my life just because it's so fresh on a daily basis. Yeah, that's good. It's like basically improvising live in real time a lot of the time. And I'll say this, there's like one caller off the top of my head 
that I could see like kind of being like the raw Pizzola that works his way into maybe having a show or a spot or a segment or something. So uh, it goes a long way. So people that are really trying to, even if you're not trying to get in the media space, but just to talk through your bets, I, I think you realize a lot more just talking it out loud, maybe saves you money. Maybe it doesn't. Um, the question about like, why, why hasn't there been something like it since then? Uh, I'll, I'll be blunt. And I've told other people this, and, and, and I'm sure you kind of realize this too. And we're talking about like, it's refreshing and it's kind of like improvising in real time. There's only a few people that genuinely bet or bet significantly that can kind of do media, at least to some extent, like I think I can, that when someone brings up a game, have like numbers and projections to reference, look, 99% of the media out there, they're like, all right, we're talking about these three games. Okay. I need 30 minutes to like figure out what I'm going to say. And then they look and they find the narrative that exists that makes the most sense to them. And then they like talk it through. Doug Kazarian, you brought him up earlier. Like he definitely bets. And if he was doing it, yeah. he could take calls on the fly and he watches a ton of sports too. And, and he could he could actually do that well and, and talk it through with anyone, just about any sport or league. Uh, but there's not a ton after a couple of people in my head uh, that, that really could do that. So I think that's part of the reason is that maybe, and I even actually pitched this to VSIN once, like, I told Gil Alexander, I was like, hey, why don't you guys like take calls? And he's like, yeah, they don't just really, really want to like, you know, bring those people in yet. I think part of it is you want to screen who's calling and make sure it's clean enough or whatever. But I just don't know if there's that many people confident enough that are hosting that could actually talk through anything that the callers are bringing up and bring into their attention. I think both you guys can do it. I think Rob could, I think Rob, you could do it. And then Preston obviously could do it. Doug EK was another one, but yeah, I agree. Not I used to pro- I used to produce that show before I hosted it, and I can totally see like it is an absolute producer's nightmare, right? Because you're screening calls and you're you're trying to ask people who they like tonight, and they're basically pitching you to to get on air. But then there's like people who just want to give out s- straight picks, and they start rhyming off their picks, and you tell them like, "Hey, buddy, you're not getting on." They get really offended. They get really upset. Then you got the guys that come on and like. Oh, you know, I want to take the Yankees because they're nine and one in their last ten Monday games, and then you have like a a decision to make of okay, this guy obviously doesn't know what he's talking about, but do I put him on the air for the content? Like it, it it's it's a very difficult screening process um, for that type of show. So I can completely understand it. With that said, I've always found it to be entertaining radio, and I think it it builds like this sense of community amongst betters as well. Like it it happens in in Slack channels and other mediums, but for some reason, just never in like the, the audio. So, I, I mean, um, credit to you guys. Yeah. Did you ever listen to after a leaf game, Andy Frost? I'd listen to Andy Frost with all the angry Leafs fans calling in and him trying to calm people down. When I was a kid, I used to listen to that every, every, after every leaf game, I'd put that on. If I was in the car, like if I was ever driving home from a leaf game, I'd listen to that Preston for your, you're not from, uh, uh, Ontario, Canada here. It's like a, a huge, huge show that after the Leaf game, and listen, they were god-awful garbage for 10 years. And it would be just angry Leaf fans who were diehard Leaf fans calling in and being like, I'm done with this team. Like, what the hell's going on? Like, I can't believe they blew this lead again. And Andy Frost is the rink announcer for the Maple Leafs. And he would just go on. He hosted an amazing show. That's my my only experience with a call-in show. And I do think it actually worked really well. So I'm also shocked you guys that no one's been able to replicate it until until you have now, Preston. That, that's some of the best radio. Though. Like, this is obviously not specific to the Toronto market. I think the closest comparable that I could think of is, is Pittsburgh. I've done a lot of radio in the U.S. over the course of the years. But Pittsburgh sports radio, after any of the teams lose, 
is mu- is must listen to radio if you're not if you're not from Pittsburgh because it's like we need to like trade Rothes trade Crosby let's let's get whatever we can for him like this is not going anywhere Pittsburgh is really b- bad and Buffalo we used to call it the Weiner line uh, but after like after the Bills home losses the the calls are just, like. Getting people's like raw emotional reactions are absolutely great, um, which leads me to like kind of an idea on the sports betting stuff. But it would be cool to to have like a post game reaction to the bets type of thing as well. I don't know if that's down the pipeline. I'm just spitballing ideas, but I technically have this like domain saved. But I still think it would be. Have you ever? So it reminded me you mentioned Pittsburgh. There's this YouTube video of the Steelers fan. I'm not sure if anyone's seen it. You can just Google it. Steelers fan goes crazy after a game, something like that. <laughs> and he just, he does, he goes crazy. He's so upset. He throws something at the TV. He like threatens. He's going to hang himself. Like it, it gets a little bit darker, but like, that's how intense that like this Steelers fan was. It actually gave me the fan. I was like, why don't we do instead of only fans? Why don't we do lonely fans? A site where you watch <laughs> people sweat the games they're betting and just get their reactions in real time. You can't have the game on because there's some copyright, something yeah, or other, copyrights. but it's basically the, you know, the video camera shot of the people that are watching the games just sitting in their room or their house or whatever. So there's something there. Maybe, maybe it starts with doing post-game reaction shows, talking about the bets they lost, what they're chasing with later that night, late in the Hawaii game or you know the next day. But there, there's something there. We'll have to talk and brainstorm uh, a little. So you know that that exists right now. So I don't know if you, you guys obviously know Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan experience. He, what he used to do was he'd call it the, the fight companion. And he, it, it would be for a big time fight that Joe Rogan was not commentating. So if there was ever a big UFC event that he wasn't fighting, he'd get him, his guy, Brendan Schaub, who's a former fighter, big podcaster now, uh, and like a couple other comedians. He'd have this guy, Eddie Bravo, who's a comedian, but he's also like one of the best jujitsu instructors in the world. And they would just watch the main card but they wouldn't actually show it. It'd be a YouTube show. And they would have hundreds of thousands of people watching just them shoot the shit and talk about the fights. And it'd be, you'd get like the uncovered side of Joe Rogan saying, wow, no, I think this guy's got like, oh, he's done, he's done, he's done. And then like, you get it from before the broad, it's, it, was, it was awesome. I, I used to watch those a lot. He stopped doing it now because he's been busy in Texas. And then Brennan Schaub took over and he started it just started like a month ago. It's called Calabasas Fight Companion, if you look it up. It's not as good as the Rogan one. He brings on, for example, he did it for the Jake Paul fight. And I actually just listened to it today. I, I listened to the clip of the how they were reacting to Jake Paul. So you can kind of see because it's a bunch of fighters. It's him, former fighter Josh Thompson. They had Rampage Jackson. They had like a couple guys that just come in and shoot the shit. And it is a good idea. If you do that with sports betting, I will definitely tune in. We've actually talked about doing it for Maction, like one night a week. Yeah. Just turning on the, night. the yeah. camera here in this studio, putting up the Maction games and just like chatting with everyone and taking calls and anyone kind of free for all for three hours. I get a ton of DMs during NFL season and they're pretty evenly split four ways. There's always the, do you need accounts? I get a lot of those. I get the, can you, can you share your plays earlier in the week? Quite a bit, uh, which I don't. Can you send me your raw numbers for the NFL games? Tons of those, surprisingly. But the last one, which always catches me off guard, and I still get a ton of them, is can you do a periscope of you watching NFL Red Zone during the day? <laughs> and and I cannot believe how much of an appetite there is for this, but I'm always like, I'll be sitting there towards the end of the early games, and I, I think to myself, like, this would have been 
the best half hour anyone would have watched this week, watching me sweat the end of these games. And I really think that there is something there. Uh, maybe we'll I'm not. To, the- we'll have to talk. I have a, I have a separate. Uh, there might be something called red zone NFTs and chill that might be okay. in the works. And if okay. you want to call in and just hang with us for a while at the end of the morning slate and of, of uh, the red zone games, we'll talk, but it's, it's uh, through a couple side companies that are going to like rent out this studio and I'll kind of host it. But uh, it's just basically that idea, but also with some NFT guys. I'm going to sweat the games regardless. So I might as well do it on camera, right? I might as well do it on camera for an audience to make fun of me, which is, would be great. You bring us care. thousands of extra eyes right away. <laughs> let's let's go. Let's get into NFTs, Preston. Um, I, I tweeted out earlier today, if anyone had any questions for you, uh, a bunch of them were about NFTs. A uh, couple college ones. Listen, we're not going to give out picks or anything like that. We asked Preston kind of a little bit about the media stuff. So we, we covered most of the questions except the NFTs ones. We love NFTs. I mean, Rob and myself talked about it on episode three of this podcast a while back uh, about, you know, Top Shot and how, what our thoughts were on that and then how much we love CryptoPunks, which uh, have been awesome so far. And it's been a fun and wild ride. So Preston, I know you, you bought a CryptoPunk, uh, a big beard one, representation of, uh, of yourself, the beard. And you ended up making a project with uh, someone, I guess, that goes by the name of Beanie, Beanie Maxi, um, for, I guess it's called Pixel Vault, but the Project Punk's comic. We want to hear about that. We want to hear about your intro into NFTs. Um, and, you know, like, let's discuss, man. I'm sure we can talk for hours about NFTs. Let, let, let's just go shoot the shit. You, you weren't going to tell anyone, but we talked about punks for like half an hour before we hit record. So we, we got a lot out of our system. So you guys didn't have to deal with it. Uh, the The start, honestly, so... I was, it actually goes and it, and it, it goes back to the sports betting space. So I am friendly with G funk. Sean is his name. He's also uh, one of the founders of, of pixel vault and everything that's going on there. So he, he was someone that followed me on Twitter for a while. He went to college with spreadopedia. And at one point we went and got sushi when I was down here in Los Angeles, like visiting family, like over one of the holidays and met him. Then whenever I, uh, he would visit Vegas once a year, I would meet up with him. So I already knew Sean prior, like before like NFTs were even a thing. And so when Top Shot, I'd really, I dove in in December and January heavily. That was like my intro to it. But I also was like, okay, there's a lot more to this than, you know, pretty much centralized like NFTs sitting on the Top Shot website. So in, in, in crappy US dollars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I might have to cut that out. I had been following Sean anyway. He didn't have more than like 800 followers maybe, but uh, he had just been around. He did some DFS stuff, but I noticed he had been tweeting about NFT stuff. And I was like, okay, hey, like, like teach me like what's going on. I wanted to learn. And he was open to like immediately within like a few days, we were basically partners on everything because uh, I added some liquidity that kept him from making some investments that he had wanted to be, uh, be making. And uh, so taking that like little background, and this is, this is a funny story that I, I've shared like once or, or twice before, but it's kind of how the whole punks comic thing came to be. Uh, there was this project called Euler Beats. It's like one of the first generative audio. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? I've been pronouncing it Euler Beats. Like Euler Beats, but it's, yeah. it's Euler, like the mathematician, his last name's Euler. Yeah. So uh, Mark Cuban was like talking about it in a video. It was getting a bunch of pub, but the way it's set up is like 27 of these Euler Beats are, are Genesis Beats. 
that reap royalties of the prints underneath them. And it's on a bonding curve and there's like a bunch of economics behind it that were kind of first to hit the NFT wave. And we, we wanted to buy one of the Genesis Beats LP25. And Beanie had like three of them at the time. He had one, 19 and 25. And so we were going to buy 25 from Beanie. We had worked out a deal. Sean and Beanie had talked before. I also asked a few DFS people like, like Peter Jennings, who was also already into NFTs. Like, have you heard anything like at least negative about Beanie? And everything was positive. So we had some mutual friends there. So we were making this deal and we just jumped on a Zoom call and like the price was like a hundred uh, ether. So it was pretty significant. I was half of it. Sean was the other half. Uh, I had sent Sean my half. He was going to send it to Beanie while I was on Zoom with Beanie. And uh, the funny part is it was Sean's and we were like trying to get this deal done because it was ramping up. Like Cuban had been on an interview earlier that morning. Things were skyrocketing. Beanie wanted to use R100 to buy LP1, which is like the genesis of the genesis. And so he had actually, he didn't have LP1 yet. He had 19 and 25. So we were buying 25, but it was Sean's three-year anniversary with his girlfriend. And they were out at a restaurant, like really nice steakhouse. He was in Atlanta, I believe at the time. And He's trying to send funds to Beanie. This guy literally goes by Beanie on the internet. A hundred, like at the time it was like maybe 200 K Yeah. And I'm on, I'm like, okay, we're good to go. And his phone dies. <laughs> so now I'm stuck on this call with a guy named Beanie, who's genuinely like a real person, like on the Zoom. It wasn't awkward or anything, but Sean then on his anniversary dinner has to go ask like the, the hostess at the front can I plug in my phone? Like, I gotta, I gotta make a deal here. So bless her soul. She's like, cool with all of this. 10, 15 minutes later, his phone turns back on. We get the deal done. But from that point on, like the trust was built, right? Because we sent him a hundred ETH first. He sent us the actual NFT, the Genesis LP 25. And then we just kind of started chatting more frequently together. Some probably a couple more trades we even made. And then the idea for like, Hey, Let's take between the three of us, we had 16 CryptoPunks at that point. And we're like, let's let's have someone like actual, let's build IP and brand around these punks. Like, you know, as a comic, we'll get a DC Marvel artist. His name's Chris Wall from Australia. We'll have him illustrate and we'll just kind of build this into, you know, where we see it going. And that's kind of where it all stemmed from. So uh, we, we have to give a shout out to, to Sean's girlfriend because... Uh, it, it never would have happened otherwise. Listen, I know, know, I know you guys have done very well on A, that project, and then B, uh, the Euler Beats as well as the other CryptoPunks. So uh, hopefully she's getting a lot more steak dinners in the future as a result of that deal. She's not listening to this. So I'm... You're 99% sure. He got a ring for her recently. So like it's, 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 I'm, but I'm not sure if he's actually popped the question or not. So if I ruin it and somehow she listens to this podcast... I don't feel terrible, but there's no way she's listening to this. But I'm, is it was was it a real ring or was it a render or was it a render uh, crystal? crystal. A render <laughs> crystal. He should have probably worked that out. That's a good call. Uh, no, but I'm pretty sure they're engaged. So things are, are looking up, and I think she realizes like there's a ton of money to be made in this space. So. One day I'll I'll propose with a with a render crystal ring or a, a, some sort of some sort of NFT ring. You've seen some of those posts from like the female personalities or influencers or like have like the ring box and it's like a picture of a bored ape or, or a punk or something like it's probably just a matter of time. When, when I bought my first when I bought my first punk, I, I recorded my wife's reaction to it. Greatest video and ever. Greatest video. Did I send ever. that to you where I basically told her I'm like, babe, this is our retirement. 
And she's she's really starting to she's trying to process everything that I'm saying, but she can't. She's just looking at this picture and she's like, I expected so much more. And and she's looking through the price history. She's like, You you are in for this? Forty seven thousand? And she's like scrolling through, she's like, and the previous per- person purchased it for eighty dollars? And you spent forty seven thousand on this, and I'm like, I'm like, this is like a steal. And it's to this day, I still watch that and I still bring it up to her. And in fact, that was very close to when we recorded like the second or third episode of of this podcast when we were really in the. In it was the a bit after. Craze. Yeah, we recorded the episode a bit uh, after. A bit afterwards, but it was. Um, uh, it's just like that's. Uh, I mean, obviously, this can go in a number of ways, but I. Uh, that that's just like a, a memory that I'll I'll never forget. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, Preston, what do you think is going to happen with the future for uh, for NFTs? A lot of people say, you know, it's a scam. It's money laundering. It's a bubble. Uh, listen, you're someone who's done well in the space with a investments, but b actually creating your own project. So, for anyone who doesn't know, Punk's comic, you're able to mint them for zero point two F at the time. So, you're looking at zero point two. Uh, of something that's you know roughly around three three thousand dollars at this point, and current trading floor at least at the time of this recording for for a punk's comic is uh, somewhere around the range of call it twelve. Um, and then on top of that, you're able to get a Meta Heroes mint pass from that, which also trades somewhere in the range of you know eight to nine at this point. So it, we're not talking about hey this is a two x three x on your money. We're talking about a significant return. Um, on a small investment or a relatively small investment. So you've obviously done well, had your own project. Would love to get your thoughts on um, where the space is going and then we can get into you know your project as well. I, I wish I had shielded harder on people. I Because I came from sports and like actual general media, like I didn't want to like Rob's point about his wife and her reaction. Like most people would just see it and just, it would turn them off. They probably would just dislike me. They'd probably think I was a little crazy. And so- uh, yeah, like a hundred X is pretty good so far. And I wish I had, you know, especially like some guys that I know have extra liquidity, they could have, you know, bought five to 10 comics at least. I think if you had bought 20, which was the max transaction at the time that you could get it once for four ether, you could, you know, it's worth one and a half million as of the Twitter spaces last night and they quoted, and it would have only cost you at the time four ether was probably like $7,000. So uh, it's kind of crazy that that's like the world we live in. That's just what NFTs are with that asymmetric type return. Um, but as, as a whole, it's interesting. People wonder like, okay, when's the bubble going to pop? I think that was one of the questions we even got today when you, when you tweeted out that we were going to be talking. And I mean, Visa just came in and bought a punk last week, like Budweiser got in. You even had the announcement today, UTA as an agency, they're actually mine. That's who represents me. They came in and just signed Larva Labs who created CryptoPunks, the Autoglyphs and, uh, Mebits. And like, they were like, taken this IP and they're going to go to movies, shows, video games. Like, look, you can say it's money laundering, but look, three, four weeks ago, you had some of the biggest venture capitalist firms yeah. internationally and nationally publicly saying they're investing in not only CryptoPunks, but a lot of the art block stuff. That's the generative art that was early and historically significant there. And now you have like an agency that's massive that it's partnered and runs with Rich Paul and Clutch Sports and LeBron James. Like, they're they're signing just the rights to maybe work with larva labs i mean if you think that's like the top i just i just don't grasp that logic i think it's still relatively early long term but like anything crypto early on too like same thing i would tell people with bitcoin right like you just have to think long term if you're concerned about trying to make 
a hundred X in a couple of weeks. Like you just can't think that way. It's just right. not going to work. And it's very unlikely you're going to hit that. Uh, so just think in five years, where do you want to be at? And then are these going to be long-term investments? And I think absolutely in five years, like most of the stuff that's been happening this year, um, you'll be you know well ahead of, of where um, we'll be at that point. So you're, you're not if, a, if we go, go ahead, Rob. If, if we go back to, I just want to, if we go back to probably about an hour ago, Preston, you talked about being open-minded, right? And I think that's just like such a key lesson in the sports betting um, culture, but also just in life in general, because this is like an open-mindedness thing. It's it's taking a concept that might be very difficult for some people to grasp and starting to say, oh, maybe there could be some value here. And it, and it, it kind of stick, something that really stuck with me over the years, and this is just me ranting as I, I tend to do every now and then, but uh, Jonathan Bales wrote an article a long time ago. I don't actually remember what it was about. Um, I think it was about crypto and him investing in crypto in some capacity. But one of the points towards the end of the article was there are so many smart people around me that are doing this. Like, why would I just not follow the the sharp move type of thing and follow the smart money just in general? And I think that's something that I've kind of adopted because, listen, I didn't get into NBA top shots fairly early Um and that was kind of a lesson learned for me in the NFT market is like, okay, once I start seeing other sharp people around me get heavily invested and putting real money down into some of these projects, I should take notice of this. And maybe that doesn't mean it's a guaranteed investment for me, but it's something that I should at least look at and start digging into it a little bit further. And that's kind of when I got sold on CryptoPunks just in general. I'm like, hey, there's a limited supply of these. They're not making more of them. Like there's probably going to be some demand for this down the road. And you start to play you know, play out these different pictures in your mind and, and these scenarios and you're like, okay, it makes sense. So I just wanted to draw it back to the whole open-mindedness thing, because I do think that, um, I mean, it's, it's a really good concept and it's really something somebody, people should be paying attention to rather than just dismissing something as being garbage. Cause I have the same stories as you, right? I'm telling the biggest arguments I've ever had in my life were with my father. When I told him I was heavily investing in Bitcoin and my my father-in-law when I showed him the, my first crypto punk. Those are the two single biggest ones where- Legendary now, moves. Le, now, and it, it, it's great that I can pat myself on the back, but I literally see my dad once a week now. He's always updating me on Bitcoin news and like he's, he's totally into it. And my father-in-law is like, you know, you were right type of thing. And it's just like that closed-mindedness and I'm guilty of it. I know lots of people are guilty of it. Um, I'll end my rant here, but I just wanted to really hit home on that because it's something that stuck with me from what you said earlier. Listen, so we're, before we get into this more, we're not financial advisors, like only invest what you could afford to lose. It's obviously an insanely risky space. So if you're talking about something like we're talking about Preston's project, 100Xing, like if, if, if it's something that can 100X, then that is also something that can go to zero pretty fast. Let's just be very clear about that. CryptoPunks have gone up. They might go down. They might go back up. Uh, to even further than this. So we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. But Preston, also, you know, not being a financial advisor, but having some experience, what do you look at in new projects to invest? Because that's a question we get a lot is, you know, I, I want to invest in this stuff. Like, what what do I do? So are you looking at projects with utility? Are you looking at these profile pick projects? Like, what do you think um, is a good strategy for someone looking to attack this market just as they would any other market? Sure. So part of the reason, like the what we approached the punks comic the way we did is the utility that we could bring to the nft space and we wanted to really be able to 
bridge like the mainstream audience with NFTs and help them realize, and again, going back to kind of being able to, you know, for, for newer people to digest this new info, like how can we help them understand the practicality and the utility of, of a punks comic NFT? And we try to do that with like, hey, when you get the NFT of the comic, you actually are gaining proportional ownership of the 16 punks that the literal story depicts, but you actually, it's a really cheap price point for someone who maybe can't spend 47,000 at the time to buy a punk themselves, but they could put six or 700 bucks in and own a you know percentage of them. There's also, you know, some DeFi stuff with, you can burn the comic that gives you ownership of some other assets. So we were trying to like bring the light, the utility. And I think the projects that are going to be long-term long-lasting will be those ones. There's so many of like the random dumb profile picture avatars, which I've bought way too many of them myself too, but like 95 plus percent won't pan out in like five years. I, I was talking five years down the road. I definitely meant like in a macro sense, but like if you're buying pickles or like the 15th cat project, like it's probably not going to work out. So I would focus, I think my main thing would be on projects that offer utility outside of just, it's a jpeg that you could use as an avatar which then you need to look into okay what is the team behind it like who are they and what are they like what is their development team like did they you know, what, how did the drop go and launch go what are the smart contracts look like and maybe you have to ask around to you know talk to knowledgeable people if you have those questions my dms are always open people can ask me if you have questions about stuff but i think that's primarily the like long-term sustainability kind of direction i would go outside of and then i'll say caveat art that I just love. And I know we were talking right before we hit record, but I kind of thought photography was the next boom after these profile pictures. One of one art was before that. And I probably bought like 15 photos of some projects that I just thought were really meaningful that like kind of spoke to me in some sense. And I have had a really cool experience. Speaking of utility, uh, Brendan North lives in LA near me. He did a painted poetry series of 40 pictures. Uh, he, he minted each one as an NFT. The first 39 were done. The 40th, it said, like, create your own and collaborate with me. And so I bid on that 40th one. And I don't think he ever anticipated this. But I was like, I actually live right near you. Like, I have this concept idea. Let's actually put me in the photo. You'd have to, like, kind of look at the, the project itself to get an idea. Uh, I know exactly the project. You know the one? Actually. Okay. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Uh, don't remind me because I, I get too much FOMO. The, I think the floor last I looked on those is like 15 to 20 now. Yeah. Dude, don't. The, I, I actually have a group that. Somebody messaged me about that earlier today. Really? Uh, the Sorry. floor is no. Go no. Go ahead. Keep talking. Listen, Wasn't trying to in, needle you. I didn't even this, know you were looking at it. In this space, in this particular space, decisions that you make up to this point, at least, will swing ten million dollars. No questions asked. Decisions that you make will swing one million, ten million. You just can't have the FOMO. Um, for example, like Preston mentioned, hundred xing on his project. Like uh, I was fortunate enough. Uh, to to be in that project at the mint, but it was mainly my partner who wanted to do that, and I had a really busy week that week, so I didn't have a chance to look into the projects. So I was grinding on bed stamp stuff, so I just told him, "Yeah, do what you want." He ended up minting a couple. Who knows? Had I been on, maybe you know, I'm like, I love it. Let's yeah, let's go twenty. Guys, let's go forty. It's crazy. At the, at the end of the day, I finished my basement for what is now the equivalent of 1.2 million Canadian dollars. So, you know, just under a million <laughs> Sold US Bitcoin dollars. to finish his basement. So like the, it, it, you, you can't think about, I'm over it now. I know it's, it doesn't sound like I am, but I am. But like at the end of the day, it's just, 
we can we can look back on a lot of these decisions and at the you know, we just got to be happy for what we have. I should take my own advice. I, I cut Preston off. Sorry. Continue on on the project, please. On the on the final piece. It's a good point. It's a little bit correlated, actually. So first part is like nobody's going to bat a thousand for sure. So don't even sweat that. And you kind of if you're accustomed to losing at betting sports over the years and having down weeks, like it's a lot easier to get over a basement that costs one point two million. Um, just had to bring it up one more time. But the correlation here, so this project, this 40th picture of the Painted Poetry series, I said, hey, let me be in it. I pitched the concept. He loved it. So I made sure I bid and won it for like, I think I, it was like the highest selling one of the initial floor of the, it was like two and a half ETH. And then they've gone, you know, sold in the secondary and they're quite a bit higher now. But I was actually in the photo. So I met up with him and a model that he hired to, to shoot this shot. But um, I kind of stole it from, so Katy Perry's last album is called Smile. And she wore something on the latest season of American Idol, which she hosts. And I didn't even, I don't really follow Katy Perry or a ton of pop music. I've gotten into it a lot more the last like year or two, but so I listened to the smile album, but she was also just representing and she had like this like hoodie, the super colorful with a, with a happy face. And so I told Brendan, I was like, let's try to like, just paint the picture of smile and all of his pictures. Like he paints the word somewhere on the shot too, with the people that are in it. So we shot this thing in LA. Um, but that's something that, so for example, I loved, I got to be a part of it. It was utility where this artist or photographer got to interact with his collector, right? Or an, ultimately a friend and it just helps build that community. So there's going to be opportunities and projects and artists doing cool stuff that's unique and different. And those are the ones that I think will, will pay off long-term versus whatever one's hurrying and minting and trying to flip right with, you know, day to day. I think so. Um, do you, go ahead, John. Uh, so do you consider, you mentioned like utility, obviously. So yeah, your project has a clear utility. Uh, you have other projects like to, to name another one, like the Medici clear utility. Uh, do you consider Bored Apes a project with any utility? So that's the argument for any of the profile picture projects have some sort of utility, right? Because there's a community aspect of utility that, and similar almost to like punks, although like punks also are just so historically significant, it doesn't matter. But I would say board apes do have utility from a social perspective. You just can't bank on every single profile picture project to have that same thing. So penguins went, what pudgy penguins went nuts for a while. Cool cats have been doing well the last week. Like there's going to be a few, but board apes say, I would say the utility has, you know, also, you know, they've been funded through the sales, through the secondary market and royalties enough that they just did the mutant project. Like they're going to be building and bringing value to their community and to their holders outside of just like, Hey, let's meet up in LA, which, which happens too. But uh, it's still also, I don't know if we know all the answers, you know, I, I'm not sure I have the answer to like everything there, but I would say you kind of caught me in half of a gray area because board apes for sure, I would say offers utility, but it's easy to say when their floors 40 something ETH now, right? But I wouldn't say that about whatever ducks or pandas are coming out tomorrow, just because it's so. Can can a project like Sup Ducks, for example, offer utility? And for all the listeners, if you if you're sports better, cancel a podcast. We'll see you next week. Close it off. We're going to talk only <laughs> NFTs from this point on. I'm sorry. So, a project, for example, like Sup Ducks, where the artwork is great, I love it. Do you think that can have utility if it gets big enough, or is that does that fall in a profile picture one of a thousand project? That's probably one of the like. 10 to 20 contenders to like be a board apes level type thing. If what's interesting to think about, and I didn't mention this earlier, but talking about like, are we early? Is it a bubble that's going to pop? I, like, I believe the number three weeks ago, do you guys know how many wallets were on open sea or active? It was like uh, 60,000. I, mean, 
60,000. Last week, I think it doubled finally. It was like 130,000. There's only 130,000 active wallets on OpenSea. It's crazy. And, and how many people have multiple wallets as well? For sure. There's, yeah, I have three that I, I use pretty regularly. And there's, yeah. yeah, for sure, there's some overlap there. So to think like, okay, there's not going to be a bunch of these like profile picture projects that are going to pan out and have the same sense of community and, and build utility from that sense. Maybe short-sighted because there's still like millions of people that eventually are going to want to have some sort of profile picture that is, you know, significant. And this, this, this NFT JPEG summer is going to like, look, subducks are part of it. And so I think everything that came out kind of in this last like little run uh, will have at least some sort of like story or narrative behind it. So there could always be that argument. Um, so it's interesting to just think about like when you think in long-term and just kind of, you know, the early stages still. Are you worried about the, so here's, here's an argument I have that's a, I think a really cool conversation. It relates to all markets, not just NFT. So CryptoPunks, um, you had your early investors who were all mega rich, you know, buy, buying CryptoPunk or minting one for free or buying one for, you know, under, under one. Um, anyone who purchased CryptoPunks at a price point of, let's say over a hundred thousand should in theory be in a spot where although they made an investment, they may not need to liquidate that in a liquidity crisis, right? So if you have someone like a Jay-Z, Jay-Z bought a CryptoPunk, right? Spent a lot of money on it. You know, there's pretty much, you know, very little scenarios in which Jay-Z is going to need to liquidate that punk because he's going to go broke, right? Um, You have other athletes, other celebrities, other influencers, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. It's a really stacked list of people who own uh, crypto punks and who don't really need to sell them in a liquidity crisis. When you then go to the, any of these smaller projects like Bored Apes, a lot of people who bought those, it was it's absolutely life changing money for them. If you minted a Bored Ape or you bought a Bored Ape for you know zero point four ether, and then you're looking at you know profits of forty to fifty to a hundred ether you're now in a spot where like, you know, you're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars that pays off debts, that buys a house, that does things. So in a liquidity crisis, um, do you, are you at all worried that projects like Bored Apes, the market cap's just too high right now and people are going to sell out and take out profits and it'll be a race to the bottom. Like, is that a concern to you at all? For sure it has to be. There's some level of, you know, chance or probability that you know, there eventually will be some sort of bear market too. And there's a good portion that's a great example because it's like the project of all projects. I believe Mint was like 0.08. And like, so we're talking about like 8% of one Ether. And then to be selling now like 200 to 500 Ether is just like insane. So there would be a big portion of that group. I think, like you said, we're kind of first there. It was maybe their introduction to NFTs. Uh, it also could have been a good portion of the Top Shot community, I believe, was kind of grandfathered in that way to Bored Apes. Uh, yeah, they'll be the first ones to take profit if they think like there's going to be a bear market for a year or two and they want to realize some gains. A lot of them haven't. A lot of them already have, to your point about like the cool stories you hear of, I paid off my parents' house, paid off my student loans. And like that's happening all the time. We've gotten some messages as well where people are like, hey, I'm glad. Honestly, I, I say I feel bad. I wish I should have shielded more. And I really kind of had that thought the last few weeks. We started getting some messages. It's like, hey, I followed you from sports for a long time. But like, hey, this is what didn't happened. win any money on your picks, but thanks. Didn't win for- any money on your picks, but thanks for the hundred X on the comic. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it happens. And so, yeah, for sure. When there is some sort of liquidity crisis as you're framing it. Yeah. Board Apes is a very strong candidate because a good portion of that community is always, is they're so far ahead and they'll try to get out if they need to. Yeah. Dear Preston, I lost 30 units tailing your picks on daily wager. 
and made it all back tenfold on a punk's coffee. <laughs> you were the oh, man. Power plus. We're back all, in the green. Yeah. All the uh, all the Seville guys who were ripping you for years for being a tout are all now singing your praises after hearing your your crypto punks recommendations and stuff like that. So it's like I'm not sure if the Seville guys are, but there, maybe uh, there's a couple that have have gotten involved. I've seen I've seen one, but it's uh it's hilarious because it's like. Uh, the double standard is hilarious. Like ripping you for being a tout in one place, and then essentially touting something touting else. NFTs, yeah. And it's like oh, the yeah, the great, community great around NFTs and sports betting is completely different. Um, oh, we, I, I had a tweet. I, I know what you're getting at. I, I tweeted this like a month ago. I don't know if you guys saw it. I guess Johnny, you're not on Twitter a ton, but uh, no, I am on Twitter. I just I just don't have my own like under just my. Just doesn't name. tweet because like, nobody yeah. wants to hear what he has. To <laughs> no say. one wants. No one cares. It was something like gambling Twitter colon. You're fat. I hate your picks. I hope you die in a grease fire. NFT Twitter calling. Good morning, friend. And I had this video. We we're at the pet store getting a fish for my little kid, my daughter. And there was these two little like mice just like playing with each other, like just having fun. And it's just the the attitude around it is extremely refreshing. Which also I think was probably part of the reason I like kind of navigated towards it from the get go back in January. Um, so yeah, gambling Twitter is it's it's brutal. I I think yeah I think that's because a lot everyone's made money though. Everyone's made money, so it's hard to hate other people when you've all only made money. Whereas happiness for everyone. Yeah. Oh, but I, I think it's, I th- it's a I good think, thing. I think someone on gambling Twitter actually responded to that tweet saying, "You know that one of those mice is going to kill the other one, right?" Type of thing. That was like one of the first responses. I was like, "Oh, here we." It's really the first thing you need <laughs> like, to say. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man, it is a big difference. So the positivity in the NFT space is a lot better. I saw like um. Let's, this gets into one question. I saw a meme that someone posted on Instagram. It was like uh, someone at Goldman Sachs saying like, I just made like 100K this year and my bonus is going to be another 100K. And they're, and it's like another guy from a competing company is like, that's absolute garbage. Like I'm a better trader than you and you still, and I'm only making 120. And then it compares it to the NFT space. And it's like, I just bought this rock and made 600k and then the other guy's looking at him and he's like oh congrats nice trade brother i just i'm up a million on my crypto punk like those that is really how it is right now and i want to ask you preston now that you've obviously had success in the nft space and it is a more risky investment higher upside like do you ever think you'll make like uh, you know have a higher percentage of your your net worth into traditional investments such as you know let's say stocks bonds things like that hmm Higher percentage, probably not. But if here's an example, I'm I'm definitely in a position now where, so I lived in Portugal for a few years. I I, I served an LDS mission there, and I there's a there's a certain type of restaurant there that does these like grilled chicken. It's super simple. They just like spread open a chicken, put it on an open flame grill, and cook them with a spicy sauce. They actually in Canada they probably have some Portuguese restaurants that do it's like frangos and it's, we have tons of Portuguese chicken and I absolutely love it. Okay, so there you go. So for people like on the East Coast, they have Nando's or in England they have Nando's. It's similar to that, um, and it's like usually fries and rice, which is a weird combo, but it's ridiculous. More carbs the better. I want to open up a freaking like chicken shack just doing Portuguese food, and like that's something I could. My brother's a chef. He's a personal trainer too. He like, doesn't look anything like me, uh, but he could help me open it up. And like my sister who doesn't really could do anything she wants to, they're both younger than I am. That's something I would totally do venture in like a business like that with family. If a friend of mine was starting a company and needed some capital for sure would do that. I don't think I would ever make it like a very high percentage of my portfolio or anything, you know, like 
sub like one or two percent is probably the answer to that. So yes, I'll always like be open to that, but I don't think there's. So you're saying you wouldn't put more than one or two percent in like a stock or a bond at this point? Correct. Yeah, there's way more opportunity yeah. digitally. Just kind of. You, you know what? And and I can respect that a lot. I think uh, probably there's a million suits right now shaking their head, and but but hey, listen, it is what it is, and I think there's definitely like listen, if you want to have the upside, you have to take some risk. Like with great risk comes great reward, and, and vice versa. Um, but it, it leads into another, another, one more discussion. Last question before we can kind of close off here, um, with the closing question, but discussion I had over the, over the weekend was if I offered you a coin flip, so it's a, qu- a question for you, Preston, if I offer you a coin flip, uh, heads or tails, you pick, if you win the coin flip, you get $1 billion, insane amount of money. If you lose the coin flip, you get zero. So your expected value on that coin flip, you know, not a rigged coin, 50-50, you choose. Your expected value is 500 million. So the question is, obviously you're going to take that coin flip and you're, you're going to try it out. But what amount of money would you accept for me to kind of buy you out of that? So if I were to say, for example, I'd give you 500 million or 501 million, you'd be plus EV. But in scenarios like this, where it's life-changing money, $1 billion, insane amount of money, you're up. Why risk it? You might take a haircut on expected value in order to secure some sort of safety. So what's the number that, you know, I would need to give you to buy out of that, that scenario? I'm not, I'm not sure if this is connected. Uh, and we didn't talk about this before. Mr. Beast, like crazy popular YouTube star. It is connected, but it okay, is connected. Okay. So you saw that and then you... But, it, but okay. explain, explain it anyways, Preston. Sure. Yeah. So I saw this and it had me already thinking through this Um his, I think, was, would you rather take $5,000 right now or flip a coin for 100000 And the amount of people, I didn't read like a ton of responses, but the amount of people that were open to just taking $5,000 from him no matter what and not taking a 50-50 shot, it was essentially 50000 free dollars. Like they're taking one-tenth of what they would make others. Like it's just the way that people think. Yeah, they're taking they're taking five ten percent of EV in order to secure uh, what is a guaranteed amount of money and not leave empty handed. It's like Which, how I used to bet, Rob, when I didn't game bet in hedge life. Right now, I will say in in some scenarios there that five thousand. And if you read through the responses on the thread, and this is why I won't shit on anybody for the response. For some people, five thousand is a life changing amount of money. So they're sacrificing oh, don't the EV. It's, it's by person, because, absolutely. So, so this is where it comes in, and I think that plays into the the billion dollar question um, just as much, where it's like every to each their own, and, and like the I, I was kind of mocked for the number that I gave. I'll wait to hear your number, and then we can we can kind of compare. Okay, hold on. So, for first thing, that was kind of why I brought it up because perspective is massive on this, and it made yeah. me realize how many people could really use five thousand bucks. So, okay, on that Mister Beast thing, by the way, one of the comments I sent this to Rob, a guy was like. The guy was like, uh, well, tails is statistically more likely to, to show. So if, if I'm allowed to pick, if I'm allowed to pick tails, then I'll take the coin flip. But if I have to pick heads, I'm taking the five grand. And that one, like if that guy was trolling, you got me, brother. That was an incredible troll. <laughs> it probably was Rob's burner or something. That's pretty good. <laughs> so yes, perspective. Go ahead, Preston. Sorry to cut now you I'm off. thinking through Rob, if people were giving, maybe you were too conservative. Here, here's, hmm. No, don't bias him, Rob. Let's hear his actual answer. Oh no, he's yeah. not. I'm I'm just I'm just thinking it through some still. The the answer shit. 
it's very dependent on where you're at in life. Like we just yes. like, again, perspective. If you'd asked me this six months ago, my answer probably would have been like in the 10 million-ish, a little higher range, like 10 to 20 million. I'd be like, I can live off that forever and probably my kids and maybe even their kids if the world's around still at that point. Now the answer's a lot higher and it sounds really, really bad. But well, so maybe that's where Rob got hit on then now that I'm thinking it through. But like, if you gave me a hundred million, I for sure would just take a hundred million. The answer is probably somewhere like 40 ish, 50, but like a billion, like I'm giving up so much money. Give me right. so much EV in that. In that so much. So, so we were out for dinner with a, a lot of other sports bettors when this question came up and there's people that are like, I, I take 450 million. Well, and I'm well, like, listen, bull, listen, bullshit. You, you, like, you asked this, you asked this 444. Exactly. Yeah. You asked this at, uh, like to people who are, are sports betters. And, and the reason it's awesome is because I like to see the way people think through it. And then if you're a gambler at nature, you understand the expected value. So that equation, you no longer have to figure out. And now it's just a matter of like, what do people value in life? Where are you trying to go? It's an awesome question. So I, I appreciate your answer. Um, in that amount. So what you're saying is, listen, I'd be set for life. I wouldn't have to worry and I'd be okay with that and giving up the EV at that amount, which I think is a really good answer. You get to a point where expected value no longer means anything because the, the amount it depends of money, what you want to do. Sure. For sure. So like, so Preston, my answer was, I believe 25 million is what I said I would take, good. which I was absolutely mocked but, and I had to defend myself with saying, I'm not having children. So it's just me and my wife. So I just want enough to live comfortably and do whatever I, the hell I wanted. Like I can already do what I want to do, but you, you like to the 10th degree, let's say of, I want to be able to, you know, golf every day, travel to wherever I want, private, whatever, like just live my life, leave some money to my nieces and nephews. And that's it. Like, I, so for me to risk that, lifestyle at the potential of five of a billion dollars, let's say, which is not actually going to change my lifestyle a whole much, a whole lot. The upside doesn't change a lot. Exactly. The difference to as, as dumb as it sounds, and I completely get it. There'd be people that say, oh, there's a huge difference between 25 million and a billion dollars. And absolutely there is. I'm not going to deny that for me. There's not it's not really changing things in any way. And I don't have generations of Pizzolas living on underneath me. So that was it. And, and like, yeah, I, a lot of the, the, the professional sports better answers were as close to the 500 million as you can imagine. Like, I'll take 490. It's like, come on here. Like if I put $250 million in front of you right now, you're going to pass that up to flip that coin. I just- What I a sweat bullshit. that coin flip would be though, man. What a sweat. That would be- Johnny, what was your answer to it? <laughs> I don't want to give my answer because I, I feel bad. I, I will say like, I don't, I don't even want to make you guys like, like the, both your answers were kind of something like, listen, this is how much money I would need to take care of myself and stuff like that. Um, the way I see it is like, I don't really care that much to live a lavish lifestyle, at least right now. Like, I mean, I don't even have a car. Like I don't, I don't need it obviously living in Toronto. Like I don't really need a car or anything like that, but like if I'm just going to look at it as like how much money do I need to live my own life? I think I'll be fine. You know, at the pace I'm going right now, living my own life. And, and what I'd say is like with a billion dollars, you could actually change the world. So it's, it's more along the lines of like what you could do for us. Yeah. Cause if I'm just thinking about myself, 
and saying like, yeah, what, what would I be able to do? How much can I live on? Like, bruh, like you don't need that much. I'll take, I, I'll take one, two million, three million, whatever. It's not a big deal. You could live off that forever. Um, I mean, maybe not with inflation, but you know, invest that in a punk's comic and like, who knows? no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I will say like, you know, with a billion dollars, you can change the world with, with 15 million, you can't change the world. So if, if you're going to, if you're going to factor in that stuff, um, I'm all about upside. So my, my number would be, would be a lot higher than your guys, if that makes any sense. That's good perspective. And I, I want to add one more thing I'm going to throw back at you guys before uh, we wrap up, because I actually have to get to a wedding in, in 57 minutes. So this is my most viral tweet of all time. It was taken by a few TikTok people too, and went viral on TikTok. They used it as like their background and they did a little skit or whatever on it. But it was a scenario that came up very similar to this, uh, little higher stakes at a poker game. And I tweeted about it the next day. And it was, if you had a 100 sided die and on 99 of them, you won a million dollars. And on one of the sides, you suffered a painless death immediately. How many times would you roll it? So, so it's like you get 1 million for cashing. 1 million, 99% of the time you cash a million every time you're like, how many times do you roll it with the 1% shot at just never existing anymore? Hmm. Well, okay, can really I give my point. answer? Yeah. yeah Zero. Ahead. So you would, you a would, million, a million's not that much. I mean, yeah. listen, it is. And I don't mean to like, now I'm sound like, hot, no, like but, but, but you can it, continuously roll it. You uh, can uh, continuously roll for, it for, for sure. But what I'm saying is this, like, there's some things that I'm not willing to risk and that's, and that's like not like, you know, a death or a death of others or things like that. Like there's some things I'm not willing to risk. Monetary is fine. If it was, um, you know, you roll it and you get a million or you on that one side, you like lose your entire net worth and start from scratch. It'd be a different story. I, I would roll it, but sure, sure. Uh, there's some things like, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'd roll that zero times. Probably not even that hard an answer for me. Yeah, I, I, I'm probably saying zero as well, just because I don't think I would have the balls to roll it enough to make it worthwhile. If that is, if you understand what I'm getting at, he's like, not gonna roll I, it 15 times to get it to where you're like, oh, I got eight figures now or something. Exactly right. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's obviously when presented with these types of situation in reality, it's very different than hypothetical. But I could never imagine myself picking up that die and rolling it and actually rolling. No, that's good. I think it's, it's obviously, again, it's dependent on your situation. I, I don't need to roll it. So I wouldn't, yep. but I, I did gain a little bit out of that thought process was the difference between $0 and 1 million is way bigger than even 1 million to 2 million. Absolutely. Alone, two to three million. So people yeah. that want to roll once and risk 1% and then they're like families taken care of, I actually am okay with that. And I wouldn't argue against them. Rolling a second time, if you already have a million dollars in your pocket, I think it's kind of stupid. But one time, I think... What were the answers on TikTok like? They were all over the place on Twitter and TikTok. Most people were like, well, can I get my grandpa to roll it for me? I'm like trying to... Do I have to pay taxes? And, yeah. <laughs> you have to pay taxes on it? <laughs> <laughs> they were really diving into the details. Someone did an entire chart of like how many times you have to roll it before you're more likely to die. And it's like 69 times, not a 69 joke. I think that was actually the number. 
then you're like more likely at that point to have died. Uh, but anyway, it's again, just a fun thought exercise, but it reminded me of this coin flip. Type. Preston, you have to get to this wedding. Uh, thank you so much for doing the podcast. If you have time for one last one, we ask everyone this question is, you know, you, you're a lot different now than you were five years ago. If you could go back and talk to the five-year-old version, like the version of you five years ago, what's one piece of advice you'd give? Ooh, I didn't see that there was a second page on this rundown. I wish okay. I had uh, been able to we think about it. No, no, no. I, I want to answer it. Not because of the time. I'll, I'll make it to the wedding on time. I just didn't get to think it through. And I feel bad because this is a good question. It's not money related or monetary stuff. Hmm. I think I, I wish I would have. Uh, I think I wish I'd have. I have a really good relationship with my brothers and sisters, but not at the level I wish that like, it could be. And I feel like. I was, I grew up in LA, Kobe fan, his death combined with COVID in just a weird year. I immediately moved that summer from Vegas down to Southern California to be closer to family. And I don't know, I was like too cool for a while for family and just to like actually for them to be in my life as much as they should have been. And part of it kind of making an excuse for myself. I grew up extremely religious, conservative, and I was like betting on sports for a living. And like, I didn't want my parents to know that for like the longest time. And then when I was going on ESPN to talk about it, I had to like, kind of tell them like, Hey, this is what I actually do. They thought I was like doing like fantasy sports stuff or whatever. It was pretty vague. And so I wish I had, if I go back five years, I'd like come clean quotation marks to them sooner and just been more open about what I was doing. And I think my relationships with like each of my family members would be stronger. So that's the first thing that came to me that wasn't like related to money and, um, Nothing I can't change now. And I feel like I have kind of prioritized. And one of the reasons I did leave ESPN ultimately after the first contract was prioritizing my flexibility and just being able to, to be around family more. And uh, actually betting is like one job in and of itself. And then doing TV six times a week, writing three articles a week. It was pretty exhausting. So doing what I'm doing now, um, it's helped at least. I'm, I'm on that path to get that direction. Good answer. I we That's the second time I've heard something similar, which is, again, uh, it's it's always interesting interviewing different professional betters that come from all these different paths and avenues and seeing the similarities amongst them. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's all that's a good thought provoking question, which is like why we like to to ask it at the end. Preston, thanks for the time. Uh, enjoy the wedding. Um, who's who's getting married? Uh, our, <laughs> it's just a friend, uh, locally from, from where we live. It's, it's not a family member or else I probably couldn't cut it this close. So we'll be okay. We'll survive. It's just a friend, a family friend. I hope they're not listening. They're like, Oh, he still doesn't care about cutting it close. Cause it's our <laughs> wedding. What an ass, you know, <laughs> I feel bad. It was raining down here earlier today and it's like their wedding day. It's outdoors. Uh, Preston on this episode may have ruined his relationship with this guy whose wedding it is, as well as the guy who he partnered with, who you might've spoiled his engagement. <laughs> That's right. And and Jeff Ma, I said his podcast. Remember, yeah, you were going to clip Je- the beginning. Yeah. yeah, you're dead to Jeff Ma now. It's unfortunate, but uh, I mean... I cut some ties, burn some bridges. All these people think Preston's a nice guy and he's just burning bridges in a one hour and 40 minute podcast. Uh, appreciate the time, Preston. Uh, it was a long one, but it was fun. And uh, hopefully... Um, I mean, if there's enough demand, I would love to do an NFT-only episode. I'm not going to promise that to anyone, and I hope there is enough demand. But, um, man, we're addicted to the NFT space, so it was nice to be able to talk to you at least for a half an hour about that. Hit me back up if it gets to that point. We'll Preston, thank you. I, listen, I'm I'm uh, less less liberal than Rob. I will promise an NFT-only episode for the listeners, and we will absolutely have Preston back on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the rest of the day.